As uh, most of the regulars know, we've been going through the book of Revelation recently. We uh, studied chapter uh, 8 last week, but before you turn to chapter 9, I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 17. Once again, we're going to set the context for this week's study. Last last week, we looked at Psalm 104. This week, we're going to look at uh, Acts chapter 17, just a brief passage. Again, I want us to remember as we step back and think about what we're studying here. In the book of of Revelation, it is God's... How can I say it? It's like a newspaper clipping from the tribulation, the, the end of the earth. The last days of this world as we know it. So I'm not going to say they're predictions because uh, predictions often don't come true. True, these are stronger than that. God is showing us in advance exactly what is going to happen during those times. And to be quite honest, uh, several times last week I had to stop back and say, now think about that. You've got to think about these things. No Hollywood producer director could ever communicate the sense of terror that's going to be pervading the earth and the people who live on it at that time as God works in an undeniable way in judgment upon this planet. In fact, um, I stressed last week, a lot lot of commentators take these passages and the first thing they do is they try to come up with some natural explanation for what it really means. Now, we're going to have a a passage here today when we get to uh, chapter 9 that they run hog wild trying to say what these things really, they're not really what they say, you know, they're symbols of other things. And, and what they do is they come up with a natural explanation for these events, and they end, end up reversing the very thing that God wants to do. And that is make it so undeniably His hand, you understand? So out of the ordinary, so unusual, that people will not be able to deny that this is the hand of God. So yes, these are extraordinary things we're reading here. But don't fish for some natural explanation. The explanation is the same God who spoke and all things came into existence is going to speak again and do incredibly amazing things. So that, here's the bottom line, people will have no excuse. God is a righteous God. And He's not going to hide behind things that people can just explain away. In the Old Testament, there is a phrase that occurs over and over in the prophets. It's called the Day of the Lord. And it's talking about this time. the day. It's His day, you see. I was thinking as I came, came in this morning, driving down the road, this isn't the day of the Lord right now. That doesn't mean that He's not doing anything. On the contrary, as we saw last week, He continues to hold together His entire creation. He sustains every living thing, including you, moment by moment, very intimate with His creation. But the day of the Lord is going to be different from now because right now, people deny God's existence. They live as though He didn't exist and they get away with it. That's incredible when you think about it, isn't it? That God will permit that to happen? And in the day of the Lord, there's going to be no more excuse, no more denying. His presence is going to be so clear. And finally, praise God, 
His presence is going to be visible when Jesus Christ Himself comes from heaven. And every eye, it says, will see Him. So as we sit here this morning, nice, quiet room. You know, you're going to go outside later, you're going to see the sun shining in the sky. This, this is not the laws of nature. This is not Mother Nature. This is evidence of the patient and kind, continual, moment by moment, atom by atom, care of this great God who loves you so much. Think about that when you go out today because it's going to be disrupted. It's going to stop. You see, he's, he's pouring out blessing upon blessing. We talked last week, remember, I said, um, uh, how many breaths do you take, remember? Remember how many breaths there were? 720, that's right. Uh, right here it says, um, let's read this passage and we're going to think about that again. In Acts 17, verse 24, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. A little lesson on what God is like here for the Athenians and for us today. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. There it is, right there. In the, oh, I can rely on that. Praise God. It's in the Bible. It's true. As soon as I see it here, I can stop. It's true. That tells me that your breaths are not a function of your anatomy necessarily or the chemistry. Right down to the molecular level we're talking about here. Ultimately, your breath is given to you moment by moment by God. And we said last week that uh, you get about 720 an hour. Think about that. Little gifts from God. We're talking about how much would you take for those? How much could I offer you? A dollar? A million bucks? They're, they're priceless, aren't they? And yet we take them for granted. You expect to get your allotment of 720 uh, before 12, since 11, don't you? We expect it. You see, and we don't, and, and we don't think about the one who sustains us and blesses us, and gives us those breaths, those heartbeats, moment by moment. And this uh, ignoring of God will not continue. He will not permit it to, to go on. It, it makes sense. Should he? Think about it. Why should he? And he has let it go on for thousands of years, and finally God's patience is going to run out. But until it does, he faithfully brought up the sun this morning. Now, of course, we know the earth is turning around. He didn't physically raise the sun, but you know what I mean. We can rely on his faithfulness right now. Praise God. I thought last week at the end of that heat wave, I love the Bay Area, God's air conditioning. You know, it gets hot out in the valley in Sacramento and, and Tracy and Livermore, and it gets so hot that all that hot air rising sucks in that cool breeze from the, from the ocean and cools us off. I love it. God's air conditioning. He did it again, didn't he, this week? Isn't it wonderful? And you can talk about the cycles of the weather and meteorology all you want. But the bottom line is God faithfully again did what he has done so many times, you see. And we look at these regular behaviors in, in creation and we take it for granted. And, and, we, and we have this terrible concept of God. Uh, people think that God just kind of created the universe and you know, set it spinning by all these laws and then went to a back room somewhere. Nothing could be further from the truth. And this is a great passage to understand that from. He goes on to say in verse 26, And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, 
and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. So that, here's the bottom line. Now, I don't know where each of you is today in your relationship with God. But I can tell you this on the authority of the Word of God, that you were created by Him and you're sustained by Him moment by moment. You're given those heartbeats and those breaths for a reason. And it's not to do your own thing. Much as we'd like it to be that way. And much as most people live that way. Here is what is the reason for your being and your living day to day. He says it. So that, verse 27, they should seek the Lord. That's it. Doesn't that make sense? Now, come on, be honest. If he indeed created you, made you out of nothing, and he, he uh, sustains you and keeps you existing, moment by moment, gives you life and breath and all things, it said, moment by moment, doesn't it make sense that the reason he's doing all that is so that you could know him? Shouldn't come as a big shock. That's it. Now, that's not a very man-centered reason for being, is it? That's God-centered. But that's Bible-centered. That's the truth. Why? He says why. Verse 28. For, this is why we, sh- we exist to seek Him. In Him we live and move and have our being. Look at that. He is very, very close to you every day. Now, close in the sense that He's He's keeping you alive. But he's not close in the sense of you knowing him until you come to Jesus Christ. As also some of your own prophets have said, for we are also his offspring. So there's the picture. I want, I want us to remember that. We read Revelation and, and sometimes we kind of think, oh, these are only bad things coming. Not clear why or anything. Well, that's why. There's, there's, there's a simple word for the situation three-letter word called sin. That's it. We have come so far from our original creation in knowing God and walking close to Him that we have, we have literally excluded God from His own creation and certainly from our thoughts. Okay, now, with that is introduction, Revelation chapter 9. While you're turning there, just, just think about it. Most of you were here last week. We talked about God giving you life moment by moment in those 720 breaths. Since, since last week, I, uh, I calculated out you've had approximately 120,000 breaths, each of them given to you by God, and nearly a million heartbeats. How did you use those last week? Because we know why he gave them to you, don't we? How did you use them? Actually, uh, to get the continuity here, we're, we're in the middle of the trumpet judgments. Remember, first were the what? What were they? Not trumpets, but what? Seals. There were the seven seals. That's right. Now the trumpets, and then finally will be the seven vials or bowls. So we're in the middle of the trumpet judgments, and uh, we're going to look at the fifth and sixth trumpets today, Lord willing. We saw the uh, first four last week. But to get the context, read verse 13, the last verse of chapter 8. And I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe. Three times. To the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels 
who are about to sound. He's saying, you thought the first four were bad. Wait till you see the last ones. You see, the, the judgment of God is going to get uh, more intense and stronger and more rapid as well. We see that as the end approaches and as the visible coming of the Lord Jesus becomes near. Now, last week was bad enough. You remember, we turned to Psalm 104 and we saw the beautiful picture there of the psalmist uh, giving praise to God for his dependability, his faithfulness in creation. And we saw four areas that's interesting mentioned in Psalm 104. Fresh water, the cycle, the rainwater, the springs, remember? Remember Half Dome, that wonderful spring up there? Um, the seas, trees and grass, and then the heavenly bodies. Each of the first four trumpets were God stopping his regular faithfulness in allowing things to happen on a dependable way and, and throwing them out of kilter. And what a, what a scary thing that's going to be. When people have so long gotten used to the faithfulness of God in maintaining these things for our comfort and our delight, to suddenly uh, destroy them, in some cases, all the grass and a third of the trees, for example, burned up. Well, these were uh, God manifesting himself the day of the Lord, remember, through creation, is the things that he has created. Now it's going to get up close and personal with trumpets five and six. And let me just say one more thing. In, in verse 13 that we just read, the woe pronounced by this angel in the midst of heaven, notice, uh, is pronounced to uh, those who are inhabitants of the earth. That's the way my version translated halfway through the verse. The phrase is literally earth dwellers in the original. It's a very interesting phrase. It occurs throughout the book of Revelation. And it's emphasizing the fact that the people on the earth have nothing more than this life, this earth. This is their life. This is all they think about. This is what they live for. Earth dwellers. Do you understand? Their focus is, you know, what am I going to do tomorrow? What am I going to do today? What am I going to get here, right now, in this life, down on this earth? As opposed to those whose focus is heavenward toward the things of God. In uh, Philippians, God des describes the two groups of people very well. He says this about the earth dwellers, the ones talked about here. Whose God is their belly. Now, it doesn't just mean that they eat a lot. He means their appetites, their desires, you see. In 2 Timothy, he puts it well when he describes in the last days, which we're living in right now very clearly. He says in the last days, Last days, men will become scoffers and so on. Then he gives a list of what they're like. Lovers of pleasure. Lovers of money. Notice the word lovers, by the way. It's interesting. Lovers of money. Lovers of self. Rather than lovers of God. Whose appetite is their belly. And whose glory is in their shame. Who set their mind on earthly things. But now he turns to the other group of people, which also will exist in the last days. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Which are you this morning? Where, where is your life focused? Where are your thoughts generally turned? Where is your future lie? Is it in this earth only? Are you an earth dweller? 
Or do you look to heaven from which will come the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, these last woes are particularly aimed at the earth dwellers in those days. Those whose thoughts are on earthly things. Chapter 9, verse 1. Then the fifth angel sounded with his trumpet. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth, and to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. Okay, it's important. Every little word in the Bible is important. It doesn't say a, a falling star. It should say in your translation, fall in. It's a past completed action in the original. This star had already fallen. And as we're going to see later in verse 11, it, it appears to be, this is, this is Satan. This is the devil. You can read in Isaiah and Ezekiel, parallel passages describing him as that. Jesus talked about how he saw Lucifer fall as uh, lightning from the, from the uh, sky. Fall in. And he was given a key. Verse 2, he opened the bottomless pit. The bottomless pit, uh, better put, it's just the shaft of the abyss. It's somewhere, it's a deep place, and it's locked up until this moment. And smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. Locusts are just grasshoppers. That's another word for grasshoppers. Anybody here ever, ever uh, been in or lived through a, a locust plague or swarm? You ever heard about them? You've heard about them. Nobody's ever, ever been? Okay, well, fortunately for you, I brought some quotations to give you a little experience of what it's like. I just got uh, some accounts of two recent plagues, one last year, one, one year before that, and then probably the greatest one that's been uh, recorded on earth actually happened here in the U.S., and I'll read about that one. But just to give a sense of what it's like, this was... Um, Headline news in the world, Asia Pacific, it says locusts swarm across Central Asia, and it's dated July 23, 1999. It says locusts have ravaged crops <coughs> in large areas of Kazakhstan and have also spread into Uzbekistan and Russia. The locusts have infested up to 7 million hectares of land in Kazakhstan. Correspondents say that Kazakh residents speak of a dense carpet of locusts covering streets and buildings, and invading houses and shops. You ever heard things like this before? That's what it's like. They are so dense, they literally cover the roads. They cover the ground. Inches deep. When you walk, you crunch. It's that serious. They talked about one cloud of these locusts, 11 miles long, 1,000 feet wide, and 2,000 feet deep. Can you imagine that? For weeks, the plague of locusts have been advancing like a moving carpet from the north, devouring crops and vegetation. Had you heard about this, by the way? Didn't even know this happened, did you? People in some areas of Kazakhstan speak of locusts crunching underfoot. The BBC's Central Asia correspondent, Luis Hidalgo, says that an onslaught like this has not been seen for decades in the capital, Astana. They completely cover the facades of some buildings. Imagine seeing, it would look like it would be moving, the building and have clogged up car engines. Local motorists have a headache. A locust swarm into car radiators and the car's exteriors covered with crushed insects are a pitiful sight. 
Okay, just last year, in fact, a few months ago in Australia. You hear about that one? First, just the headline before it happened. It said, this is uh, in November, Australia is bracing for its worst locust plague in more than 20 years. The cost to farmers could be up to $200 million, and it was even worse than that when it happened. Here we, this is the story of a woman, an eyewitness, who drove through it in Australia. I traveled through a locust plague in South Australia and far western uh, NSWS, New South Wales, in May this year. The locust swarms basically extended all the way from Hawker to near Broken Hill. That's several hundred miles. But were worst of all around the town of Peterborough. The mini-plague at Morgan, mentioned by Anne Green, would have been connected to all this. For those of you who haven't experienced a plague, imagine driving through clouds of locusts so dense that you can hardly see where you're going for mile after mile. As you drive, they appear to zoom towards you, and with no time, the windscreen is covered in splatters with barely a clear patch to look through. They get into every little nook and cranny in the car. I remember clearing out handfuls from under the bonnet, the, the hood, and the car had a horrible smell of dead locusts for weeks. Anyone traveling through a plague is advised to fit a radiator screen, otherwise they clog up the radiator, and there can be overheating problems. In Peterborough, the locusts were piled up on the footpaths against walls and shop doorways. She said the entire uh, surrounding landscape was completely barren of green. There was no vegetation left at all, like a moonscape. Uh, later, a scientist, Dr. Campbell is his name, estimated the swarm had up to 10 trillion locusts. The population of the Earth is roughly 6 billion right now. This is a thousand times that. It's about uh, 12 locusts for every person you know, on, the, on the whole earth. We, we just can't conceive these things. Well, one of the uh, greatest locust plagues that ever hit the earth, interest, interestingly enough, was actually here in the U.S. It was in 1874. And I found some uh, accounts of it on the web. One of the most mysterious of all locusts is the Rocky Mountain locust, Melanopolis spratus. It decimated the western U.S. during the 1870s and then abruptly became extinct. This locust produced the largest insect swarms in recorded history. In their numbers, they darkened the sky. The hungry insects are virtually, ate every, virtually everything in their path, consuming not only live plants, but also laundry hanging on lines and even the wool off of sheep. They were crushed on railroad tracks in such large numbers that the oil from their bodies prevented trains from gaining, gaining, gaining traction on the rails. Railroad workers had to throw sand on the tracks to enable the trains to go up grades. Kansas passed a law that created a grasshopper draft requiring men to drop whatever they were doing to collect locusts if summoned to do so. Uh, we have one first-hand account here from a, a man who lived at that time. For the first three days after their appearance, the whole heavens were darkened with their presence and the earth with their bodies. They covered every tree and plant and every green thing, the prairie and the watercourses. They flew like hail in the faces of men, dashed themselves against every object, animate and inanimate, and as they rushed through the air near the earth and struck an opposing object, the rattle of their contact resembled the sound of a hailstorm on the roof or of the clashing of sabers in the scabbards. You got the picture? Horrible, isn't it? That's what it's like to experience a locust plague. And these are nothing compared to what God is going to do in the end times. You see, 
he's controlled, limited the things that have happened up until the end times. Jesus said it'll be a time such as the world has never seen or will ever see again. We've had earthquakes, we've had floods, we've had tornadoes, hurricanes, locust plagues, you name it. But nothing like what God is going to do to wake the earth up and say, hey, I'm here. You need to know me. You're here for a reason. Wake up before it's too late. Now, the interesting thing, turn to your Bibles again in verse 4, because these are not ordinary locusts. For example, verse 4 says, They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth. Now, as people are frowning, saying, What? Remember, John is given a vision as he sees these things. And he's writing down as best he can to describe what he sees. And he has to relate these things to things he's already familiar with. Do you understand? So it's going to turn out that you're not going to find this species of locust in your etymology book, in your insect book, because these locusts have never been seen. Just as God created, I don't know, maybe a thousand species of locusts up until this point, there's one more that's waiting to be revealed. And as we read on, you're going to see these aren't like ordinary locusts. But when John saw them, to him they looked like locusts. Do you understand? But they're different. First of all, they don't green, eat eat uh, greenery. But only, uh, let's see, or any green thing, or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. God is going to target in the end times those who do not know Him with these locusts. Now, these locusts are unusual in that they don't eat greenery. In fact, we saw that they were like scorpions here in the previous part. They have a sting. Imagine what it would have been like if God had created locusts like that already. Imagine these swarms. I mean, they come in your house, you can't keep away from them. And if they stung, praise God, grasshoppers don't bite. <laughs> Wouldn't it be horrible if these plagues we're talking about where you crunch, you know, through foot-thick piles of them? Imagine if they stung. Well, that's what it's going to be like, you see. I want you to notice, too, again, the careful control God has over this judgment. You notice that? They were commanded clearly by God. God limited what they could do. They couldn't eat the greenery. He made them this way, you see. But they did chase people. But only the people who didn't know the Lord. Verse 5, And they were not given authority to kill them. They, they won't kill you. But to torment them for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. Wow. Except it's not an instantaneous thing. It, the, the language seems to indicate that the pain lasts for five months. In fact, it's so bad, verse 6, in those days men will seek death. It will be so bad, people will want to die. Can you imagine having that kind of pain for a day? You know, it just won't go away. People talk about euthanasia. They're, they're going to want it bad. It's going to last for five months. And uh, <clears throat> they will seek death and they will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. It, it sounds like God will not permit them to die. Uh, like somebody's going to go out and jump on the river and try to drown and they'll float. God will not permit them to escape this judgment, you see. They're not going to take the cheap and easy way out. They've ignored him and now they're going to be judged for it. Now, now we can take out the, the, the uh, metaphors in the similes, because we're going, to, we're going to see the word like a lot now. But I want to stress something here. 
you don't see the word like when it came to locusts. It didn't say they were like locusts. They're locusts. Okay? The commentators go hog wild and they start comparing these and they say, oh, well, they're symbols of um, tanks. You know, or some kind of a uh, spiritual attack. But God's, God's word says they're locusts. Okay? So we'll stop right there. But now in describing them, you see they're not the ordinary species you're going to look up in your Audubon book. Because they, their appearance, obviously God is giving him a close-up view of one of these. And here's the description. Listen to this. Verse 7, And the shape of the locust was like horses prepared for battle. Wow. And on their heads were crowns or of something like gold. And their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair and their teeth were like lion's teeth. And this is John doing the best he can to communicate to us what these locusts of the future look like. And I don't know what kind of picture you got in your mind, but it's going to be a horrifying thing. Nine, and they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. The grasshopper is already a hard-bodied animal. So apparently these are going to be so hard, they're going to be impossible to kill. That's, that's the idea. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. And that's true of locusts today. They had tails like scorpions. And there were stings in their tails. And their power was to hurt men five months. And they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon. But in Greek he has the name Apollyon. And it appears to be the devil. One woe is past. Behold, still one more, two more woes are coming after these things. And no matter how we try to paint the picture here, there's no way we can comprehend what it's going to be like to live through this judgment on earth. It's, going to be, it's not going to be uh, Uzbekistan or Kazakhstan. It's going to be worldwide. A worldwide plague of these locusts that sting like scorpions. And, and because... Uh, they're not like anything that's ever existed. It's going to be clearly the hand of God. You see. I want to pause before we get to the next section here and just think. As the angels look on us, you know, angels are in our midst right now. There's probably more than one angel present right now with us. Uh, there could be fallen and unfallen angels right here with us. There probably are. Because fallen angels oppose the work of God and so they're probably right now working in hearts. Uh, no doubt trying to whisper in your ear, you know, oh, this is a bunch of bunk. Don't listen to that. It's a bunch of fairy tales. You know, whatever, whatever you do, don't let it get personal. They do that. And there are, there are unfallen angels obeying God, accompanying His Word. Probably uh, doing... Imagine how incredible it must be to walk among created beings like us right now and see the way people pretend that God doesn't exist. That must blow them away. You know, we saw in chapter 4, do you know there are no atheists in heaven? <laughs> there are no evolutionists in heaven, do you know that? That, that hymn of praise 
that the angels and the 24 elders sang in Revelation 4, it was a scene in heaven, was, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power and blessing, because Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they were and are created. Isn't that a great hymn? Notice they say they were created and are in other words, he didn't just create them for his pleasure and now they're cut off doing their own thing. And our present tense, it hasn't changed. Creation is still here for his pleasure. They, they don't have any problem seeing that. In fact, they praise God for it. Do they see that in their typical goings and comings on the earth? That this other race, so to speak, of spirit beings, people, do that? Do we join in the choruses of heaven in praising God and thanking him? Well, the Gallup poll, most recent one taken uh, just this year, in this country, 95% peop- 95% of people said they believe in a supreme being. Isn't that good? The problem is the kind of supreme being they believe in. 80% believe that that supreme being uh, watches over us. 60% believe that that being can be trusted. Getting worse, isn't it? But forget Gallup polls and what people uh, say. The bottom line is God looks at the heart. And you know what he sees? And this is what the angels see. And I'm sure they can't believe that it's happening. 99.9% of people on earth live as though God did not exist. you believe that? That's what they see, and that's what God sees. We were uh, coming home from church last week, and we saw a great bumper sticker. I noticed it first. It said, National Atheist Day. Have you seen that one? Tom's grinning. Tom sees all the bumper stickers. And I thought, oh, brother, you know. Now they've appointed a day for atheists. But then I I looked in parentheses and it said April 1st. (laughs) April 1st, we call it April Fool's Day. Actually, the real name is All Fool's Day. Isn't that good? And down in uh, in small print on on the bottom, it had Psalm 53, verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Okay, pay attention now. They'll take care of that. Psalm 53, verse 1, The fool has said in his heart, that's the atheist, there is no God. So that's good. All Fool's Day is April, April 1st, so that's National Atheist Day. It's significant that uh, that verse is in the Psalms and not in Proverbs, by the way. Because Psalms is the set of writings that so beautifully attribute to God His faithfulness in creation, His goodness in creation. And so that's the place to put that thought. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So, God is going to speak to the atheists. And when I say atheists, I don't mean people who just say they don't believe in a God. I mean the people who live like there's no God. He's going to speak to them. And I can't help but think that his words are going to be something like what he said in Isaiah to the nation of Israel. In the first two verses of Isaiah, God says this, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. For the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, 
and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not consider. You catch that? Nation of Israel, God's own special people. Think of all the things he did for them. Think of the ways he made it so clear that he was going to care for them. The undeniable ways they saw his miracles and the great things that he did. And yet, in, in a short amount of time, they had turned to live their own ways away from God. And it's ironic the way he phrases this. He says the ox knows its owner. You see, by contrast, they did not. We do not. When I say we, I mean people, humankind. We're created by God. We're sustained by Him. And we don't even know it. We don't care. The ox knows his owner. He says the ox, a dumb animal, at least knows his owner. You, you get some farmer with his ox. And the ox would be out in the field, you know, grazing or something. And the owner, he would know that voice. The ox would know his owner's voice. The owner would just come out and just say a few words and the ox knows it's time to go into the barn. If he could hook a plow up to that ox and just say a word and the ox knows his master's voice and he'd start pulling that plow. Now you go over and try that and the ox probably won't even lift up his ears. You see, he knows his owner, a dumb animal. And God says, look at this dumb animal. He knows his owner. Look at my people. They don't even know me. He's using... Creation is a testimony against people who have forgotten where they came from and whom they owe their existence to. And then later, he says the donkey knows his master's crib. The crib is the manger or the trough where the donkey ate, where he got his daily sustenance from, you see. He'd know that. I bet he'd start salivating as soon as he got near the manger, you know, just from habit. He, He knows it. The donkey does. He knows where he gets his food from. He knows where he gets his life from. And the angels look around and see people, incredibly, who don't even give thanks to God in spite of him caring for them day after day. Well, he judged Israel for that. You think the world's going to get away with this? Verse 13, and we'll finish with the sixth trumpet. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared, listen to this, for the hour and day and month and year were released. Now pause. To kill a third of mankind. This is the second woe, and what a woe. These are four Apparently very powerful beings. There, there are differences between angels, by the way. They're not little fluffy things with wings on their back. not little fat babies, you know, with halos over their heads. These are great, powerful beings, angels. They're spiritual beings. They're real. And among them, there, there are uh, hierarchies and, and levels of power and authority. That's clear from the Bible. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us that. And these apparently are four incredibly powerful Angels. And they're there right now. You, if, if you could detect angels and go to the place near the river Euphrates where they are, they're there right now. They're bound. Elsewhere in Jude uh, verse 6, God talks about how some of the fallen angels are bound. Well, here these, these guys are somehow tied down so they cannot act, but they're appointed to act and God knows right down. Did you notice that? Right down to the hour. Very specific. 
at a given point in time, God will then release these angels. And no matter how you think about that verse, there's no way you're going to comprehend it. It says they're going to kill one-third of mankind. If these events happen soon, which I believe they will, we're talking about two billion people. Two billion people across the face of the earth. Verse 16, Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million, and I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. And you're going, what? What horsemen? What horses? Where did they come from? And here again, particularly as we read on and see the characteristics, it's very tempting to look at these, these horses here and say, well, they're tanks. Because it says uh, in uh, verse uh, 17, the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. You know, it sounds like the turret of a tank, possibly. And then um, verse 19, for their power is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents, having heads, and with them they, they do harm, like a little machine gun, maybe. And that's what the comment, a lot of the commentators will get carried away with. But did, did, uh, did John say they were tanks? Of course, he couldn't because he didn't know what tanks were. He says, they're horses. He doesn't say they're like horses. He said, they're horses. Remember the ground rules when we start studying this book. If we see the word like or as, okay, that's a metaphor. So you've got to do the best you can to picture what it's like. He doesn't say they're like horses. He says they're horses. But again, like the locusts of the previous trumpet, they're not like any horses you've ever seen. Now the question is, where did they come from? <laughs> that's the big mystery. Because... Uh, in verse 16, he starts talking about them as if we'd already met them. But he hadn't talked about them. They're just there. And now a lot of people say, well, they came down from China. Or, you know, they invaded from Russia, you know, or something like that. And they try to link them with some of the verses in the Old Testament. No. I believe just like the locusts, this is a special creation of God. And an act of judgment. That's not a big thing for God to do. Look, if he can speak the universe into existence, it's not a big thing to uh, create on the fly 200 million horses like this. And it's important that they be just like God describes it here because it will not, uh, they will not be able to, to deny that it's the hand of God. It's clearly the hand of God. So now as we read, do the best you can to kind of get the picture of what, it, what it's going to be like. Thus I saw the horses in the vision, verse 17. Those who sat on them. This is the only picture we get, by the way, of the riders. So look quick. All it says is, uh, they had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. Wow. You got the picture? Red, blue, yellow. They have breastplates on the riders. Now back to the horses. We don't hear anything more about the riders. We don't know who they are. It's very possible that uh, these are simply demons that these are fallen angels who are inhabiting, so to speak, these, these uh, horses and maybe even the riders. We don't know. Remember in the Gospels when the Lord Jesus cast the swine, pardon me, cast the demons out of the man called Legion and they went into the swine. They can inhabit any kind of living being. And so it's quite possible, particularly with the introduction of Satan in the first verse, that these are more Demons who are given free reign here. Verse 17, continuing, The heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues 
a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents having heads and with them they do harm. And we just cannot conceive the, the terror that's going to be in the hearts of men who are going to be living through this as one-third of the people on the earth are killed in a, in a horrifying way. Now, you would think reading these words that people would wake up that they would say, we've, we've neglected God all this time. It's time to repent. It's time to turn to God now. Read verse 20. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries. The word there in the original is pharmakia. What does that remind you of? Pharmacy. Yeah, it's drugs. Or their sexual immorality. We're right in the middle of it here, brothers and sisters. San Francisco was the first city in the world to uh, pass an ordinance several years ago requiring um, businesses to insure couples of the same sex as they do uh, normal marriages. And then just a few weeks ago, they added transsexuals to the list. Their sexual immorality or their thefts. Behold the hardness of the human heart. And it's no wonder God is going to bring things to a close. We see it now. We're in the middle of it right now. You can't do anything about the rest of the world. The bottom line is where do you stand with God? Are you an earth dweller? Be honest. Do you really, your, your mind is focused on earthly things. Where's your heart? Do you know God? Let's pray. Father, we think of these words we've read and they're awesome words. We know they're going to happen because you said so. Father, we think of something else that you said would happen. You talked about the one who would come. You talked about someone who was going to be bruised and marred beyond any other man. You talked about someone who was going to be like a sheep led to slaughter. You talked about someone who was going to bear our iniquities. You said that all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And we praise you that it took place, that it has happened just like you said it would. Jesus has come. Hallelujah. He's died on a cross. He paid for my sin in full. Praise his name. Lord, we pray for anyone here this morning who has not come to the cross, bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray they do that today. Lord, we pray there be no one in this room who would be left behind to face these terrible, terrible things when the patience of God runs out. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.